0: Welcome, everyone. Uh, My name is Neil McCluskey. I am the director of the Center for Educational Freedom at the Cato Institute. Um, And welcome to the book forum for School Choice Myths. Uh, That is School Choice Myths, which is out today. Again, I'm Neil McCluskey, and I'm director of the Center for Educational Freedom. I think we're having a little technical difficulty here. Hold on a second. (laughs) Okay, sorry about that. There are always gonna be little problems in these things. So anyway, we're here for the book, School Choice Myths, out today. Uh, Our goal with this book was to produce a kind of a handy reference for people to deal with 12 of the most common and really flawed objections to private school choice that you may hear over and over. Uh, Each chapter is long enough to get in depth into the particular problem, but short enough that you can read them in 15 minutes or so. Um, There are 14 contributors some of the chapters have co-contributors there are two editors uh, and a whole lot of powerful evidence and logic in this book Uh, i'm not going to itemize every myth that's in here today but we'll assign a myth to each contributor we've got with us Um, wish we could have all the contributors with us today and we will try and do events that eventually encompass everyone and by the way contact us if you would like to host something Uh, but we've got some great contributors here. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail on everybody's bio so that we can get to your questions and comments as quickly as possible, but I will quickly tell you a bit about each person on our panel. Also, don't forget, uh, the best questions or comments from registered attendees, that's you out there in the audience, will be selected to win free books signed by me and Corey Dangelis, who you'll meet more in a second, so while I read these bios, think of what you want to know or say and use hashtag CatoCEF on whatever platform you're watching us on. And now our panelists. The first is Corey D'Angelis. Um, you may be familiar with Cory from lots of different things, um, uh, but uh, you probably will know him best as the co-editor of uh, the, this book, of School Miss, and also the person in this book who is tackling uh, children are not widgets, so education not, must not be left to the market. Uh, he's also the Cato adjunct, or a Cato adjunct. He's director of School Choice at the Reason Foundation and the executive director at the Educational Freedom Institute. Next, we have Patrick Wolf, who's the dispeller in this book, of the myth public schools are necessary for a stable democracy and he's also the distinguished professor of education policy and 21st century endowed chair in school choice in the department of education reform at the university of arkansas college of education and health professions uh, next we have tim keller who's the destroyer of private school choice is unconstitutional of the myth private school choice is unconstitutional he's also the leader of the institute for justices educational choice team. Uh, they do, or they're do a, a band of lawyers who do terrific work on all sorts of issues, but in particular, for, at least as far as we're concerned, school choice, uh, and they had a lot to do with the Espinosa decision uh, that the Supreme Court uh, ruled on or uh, issued uh, a few months ago. Then we have Inez felter Stepman. She's the vanquisher of the myth, students with special needs lose with school choice, She's also the Senior Policy Analyst at the Independent Women's Forum, among many affiliations. Uh, next, we have Ben Scaffity, who, along with Marty Lucan at Ed Choice, is the decimator of the myth that school choice siphons money from public schools and harms taxpayers. Uh, he's also a professor of economics and director of the Education and Economics Center at Kennesaw State University. Finally, there's me. Uh, As you know, I'm the editor of or co-editor of this book. I'm the director of the Center for Educational Freedom here at Cato, uh, and I also take on the myth that school choice balkanizes. I'm also not the technical director of anything and should note that I thought there were technical problems because I had this event playing at the same time as I was speaking. So don't take technical advice from me, but when it comes from school choice or to school choice myths... Please listen carefully to what I and everyone here says. Now, how is this going to work? Well, I'm going to be grabbing questions and comments um, from uh, lots of different people. uh, And I'll tell you a little bit about that. Uh, And I'm going to be then directing them to the person whose chapter most directly addresses that question. But anyone, any panelist is welcome to chime in. Um, What I ask the panelists to do is just wait for me to call on you. Uh, so that we can avoid the dreaded online conference gridlock where everybody is speaking and we can't understand what anyone's saying uh, and we can't hear somebody saying, wait, why doesn't one person speak? So I will call on you. For people who are watching, remember you can use hashtag CatoCEF on whatever platform you're using to watch this, Twitter, uh, YouTube, whatever it is, and then direct your questions or comments to us. I will get all of them and I will pick... You know, what I think are, you know, really good questions or comments or just ones we haven't gotten uh, so that our panelists can address them. Um, and again, I apologize for the technical uh, problems. They really weren't technical. They were operator error by me. I think everything will go much more smoothly now. So our first question uh, comes from Richard A. Shulman via Twitter, and he says or asks, do we have any breakdown on what percentage of charter, private, and denominational schools are teaching the Bible? Are charter schools restricted from doing so? He says, Bible knowledge, not necessarily sectarian, is essential for understanding Western art, history, and culture. And I thought I could perhaps start with that one, uh, because among many things, uh, I run something called the Public Schooling Battle Map, um, and the public schooling battle map uh, has sort of values and identity-based conflicts um, from school and public schools around the country, uh, and you see lots of battles about the Bible. What we know is that the Bible is allowed to be taught as sort of literature, as part of history, but it gets very um, controversial no matter how you try to introduce it because it is so likely that it can end up being uh, at least interpreted as somebody proselytizing. Uh, So it's not that it's not allowed, but it is a very uh, controversial issue. I would like, though, to open it to any of the panelists who want to say more than that. Uh, Maybe Tim in particular might have something to say that with a lot more legal depth than I could offer. If any, nobody else has to answer it because I'm happy to answer that one. Uh, Corey, do you want to add something? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, the the basis of the question is about charter schools and how many of them are religious. Well, charter schools as public schools aren't allowed to have uh, religious instruction. Um, That's one of the reasons why they are actually defined as uh, public schools. They're privately operated, but they're publicly funded, highly regulated by the by the. Government and they can't charge tuition uh, or fees for public charter schools. In general, they also must, in general, uh, accept all students at random. Um, but our book and uh, mostly focuses on private school choice initiatives, where the money follows the child to wherever they get an education, which which could include uh, your public school, but uh, mostly private school private schools as well, and then also homeschool settings and micro schools. Um, so we don't get into much about charter schools. I would recommend uh, T- Thomas Sowell's "Charter Schools and Their Enemies." It uh, goes pretty well with our book if you want to uh, look at the charter school side and the private school choice side. But some a lot of the myths are similar in the charter school debate at, to the myths that that float around in the in the private school choice debate as well.
0: Yeah, uh, Inez has something she would like to add to that. I think Inez is muted.
2: Sorry, guys. First time. Um, no, so uh, you know, Tim will be able to answer this question from a legal perspective better than I can, but actually it's not that cut and dry because when you have a charter school comp- uh, that is run by a private company, um, there are some, it's very, very rare, and I, I believe it only happens in Texas right now. Um but uh, theoretically, there, there is an, a legal argument to uh, the idea that you could have a religious organization running a charter school. Um, but that, that is not the case in the vast majority of states. It, it, it is very, um, very much a, a very small minority of those cases. Um, but, but I think the question was actually about biblical literacy and not about teaching religion. And of course, there's no reason why even a public school um, would be forbidden by the First Amendment or even by current jurisprudence from teaching biblical literacy as long as they are not teaching it um, from a proselytizing perspective, from a religious perspective. And they're teaching as, as is common, right? You really can't understand uh, the Western canon as as the, the commenter said, uh, unless you have some working knowledge of biblical literacy. I mean, for, for starters, you couldn't understand Lincoln's a house divided speech, right? Um, so I, I do think this comes down to we, we really have to, I think one of the, the key things that school choice can do for us in America is to reintroduce a wider variety of curriculum options uh, because what we're seeing right now is that the public schools have largely decided to teach one version of American history. They've chosen to teach one version um, of, of the story uh, about our, our citizenship, our, our, and I think biblical literacy kind of falls in the same category. And through school choice, It'll actually allow more families if, if there are a lot of families that are concerned that their kids aren't getting biblical literacy in school or um, who they're concerned about what the public school is teaching in any other way. This will provide uh, an ability for them to go ahead and make sure that the education their children are getting is aligned with their values at home. So I think that's one of the most important things that school choice actually can do, um, a broad-based school choice uh, sort of system can do for American students and families.
0: Schooling battle map and just tracking these sorts of values conflicts is absolutely you can teach biblical literacy, but so many people are afraid it will become proselytizing, which is understandable. If we could choose schools, we could choose schools knowing what their policies are. And we wouldn't have to worry that someone's going to try and impose something on us because we can opt in and opt out. Um, If nobody else has anything they want to say on that one, we're going to move on to the next question, uh, which is really a comment. But one of the most annoying myths there is. Uh, This comes from a he shows up as Andrew Finky with a lot of eyes on Twitter. Um, And he said, here's a myth. Parents do not know enough to practice education choice. I mean, that's sort of like one of the most basic and pernicious myths. I will say that the chapter in the book that deals with this most directly is from Virginia Waldenford, who um, she was sort of like the uh, ultimate moving force. Uh, to get the voucher program in DC. Uh, You should see the movie Miss Virginia, which is all about her efforts to get school choice in DC. And she talks about how even the lowest income people who we often say, oh, well, they wouldn't have the wherewithal to make a choice. How as soon as they were given the ability, the power to choose, they used it and they were committed to using it well because they care about their kids. Um, But Patrick Wolf. Uh, has done a whole lot of research on the D.C. voucher Program, and I'm sure he can give us a whole lot of additional insight into that.
3: Sure. Thanks, Neil. There's lots of evidence to undermine the myth that parents are poor choosers uh, of of schools and are overwhelmed with the responsibility to choose their child's school. Uh, For example, we ran a series of focus groups after the launch of the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program where we met with parents and had them discuss what they were looking for in schools and why. And we found a very interesting pattern and that was initially they were really looking for safe schools, Uh, you know, schools with with strict discipline policies where there was an ordered learning environment uh, that was safe for their child. And then their next priority was uh, the educational quality of the school. And if you've taken psychology 101, you probably know immediately that they are following Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. That as a parent, you know no other concern is foremost most in your mind if your child isn't safe. So quite logically, the parents tended to emphasize school safety. Once they had that, Then they pressed on for academic challenge and academic quality. Two other studies I want to briefly mention. Uh, One is by Mark Snyder and his colleagues. Snyder is now the director of the Institute for Education Sciences uh, in the the Department of Education. And what they did was they asked parents what they were looking for in a school. What What was the number one quality in the school that they were about to choose. These were all parents who were going to be choosing their child's school for the first time. After they recorded those preferences and the parents chose schools for their children, they went and they collected information about those schools and they rated the characteristics of the schools and found that uh, there was a very close match between the feature of a school that a parent said was most important and how high the school they chose rated on that characteristic. So the parents were basically saying, I want a school with this feature, high teacher quality or or, um, a a robust uh, special education program. And if they were allowed to choose they tended to select schools that were especially high on that characteristic. And the final study I'll mention uh, was co-authored by, by my junior colleague, Brian Casita and me, uh, also from the DC Choice Evaluation. And what we did was we, we asked parents, we, we surveyed parents about the characteristics of their child's school after they won or didn't win a a school choice lottery. And we found that the parents who won a school choice lottery and therefore had the opportunity to choose their child's school provided more accurate information about that school than the parents who lost the lottery and just defaulted to their neighborhood school. So that shows that when parents are given the responsibility to choose a school, they're incentivized to collect accurate information about that school, to know the schools that are available to them. So I think all three of those studies really strongly undermine the myth that parents are poor choosers of their child's school. Thanks, Corey
1: point out really quickly, this is one of the most paternalistic arguments against school choice in general, primarily because well-off families already have school choice. They can already afford to live in the neighborhoods that are residentially assigned to the best traditional public schools and they're more likely to be able to afford to pay for a private school out of pocket. So in this sense, school choice is actually an equalizer because it allows less advantaged families to have choices as well. And we we trust uh, all sorts of families to be able to make choices in other aspects of our lives, whether that comes to picking your grocery store, picking your doctor. You don't have to be a doctor to pick your doctor. You don't have to be a nutritionist to pick your restaurant. You don't need to be an educator to pick your school either. Um, and so look, The bottom line is that disadvantaged families and all sorts of families in general have more information about the needs of their individual children, and they have more incentives and stronger incentives to get the choice right when it comes to their children's education than bureaucrats sitting in offices hundreds of miles away.
0: All right. So I'm going to go to the next question. It comes from Lenny Jarrett. Uh, He asked, does private school choice drain funds from public schools? They also said that's his favorite myth to bust. Ben, you know all about that one. Bust that myth.
4: Yeah. (laughs) That is a very common argument used in state capitals. School choice is taking money from public schools. School choice is taking money from kids. School choice is costing taxpayers billions and billions. It's actually a really silly argument if you think about it in terms of a few basic facts. First one, school choice programs on average cost taxpayers about 40% to educate students, 40% as much as taxpayers pay to educate students in public schools. So it's like a 60% discount. So it's kind of ridiculous when you think about it to say, you know, here's one that costs a certain amount, And then the school choice program is 60% cheaper to the taxpayer, but we're worried about the cost of this cheaper alternative. I mean, Again, that's ridiculous. There's been about 50 studies on this. Almost all of them show that choice saves taxpayers money. Choice leaves more resources for students who are in public schools because public schools are the only walk of life that Marty Luke and my co-author and I are aware of where they get to retain funds when they lose customers. So for example, when a student leaves my university and say transfers to the University of Georgia, we lose Pell Grant funding, we lose Hope Scholarship funding, we lose state formula funding, we lose tuition and fee funding. But public schools, when they lose a student to another school district or they lose a student to say a private school through a choice program, they get to keep all their local funds, and they get to keep almost all their federal funds. So for example, the state of Indiana, we had four or five years of data from their choice program, and Indiana public schools uh, during that time lost over 14,000 students. But during that same time, they added over 3,000 staff. So as they were losing students, they were adding employment, right? So there's actually more resources for students in Indiana public schools. Um, It's a very powerful myth, and it's very silly if you think about it for more than
0: five
1: seconds.
0: (laughs) All right, Corey, has something he wants to add on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, what people say about this is they'll say that school choice defunds public schools. And my quick response is that school choice doesn't defund public schools. Public schools defund families. You similarly wouldn't say that, you know, so school choice just returns that money to the hands of the rightful owners. Uh, the families so that they could be able to choose uh, the school that works best for them. That could be the public school, but it could be a private school too. You should, you would similarly never hear someone say that allowing families to choose their grocery store defunds Safeway. You would never hear that, and it would be absolutely ridiculous for someone to say that because the money doesn't belong to Safeway; it belongs to the families and to wherever, and 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 they can take that to wherever grocery store works best for them. Uh, similarly, the the money doesn't belong to the public school system. It's supposed to be meant for educating the child, not propping up and protecting uh, government monopoly.
4: All right. And and one more, yeah. And one
1: more thing. This this is a this is a pretty big admission from the other side that they believe that when families are given the option that they'll leave the public schools. Why would public? Why would giving families the option to leave defund public schools at all if? You're also arguing that public schools are doing a good job and you don't need school choice. They'll they'll argue both of these things at the same time, but it's a pretty astonishing admission that they they think they understand that they're not providing adequate educational services for so many children. I mean, if you look at the surveys from EdChoice and other uh, polling that's been done on this, I think uh, about 82% of people have their children in traditional public schools, but only about 30 to 40% of families would actually choose that when given a meaningful option.
0: Okay, Ben, you had one more thing to say there?
1: Yeah, um,
4: Marty Lucan, uh, my co-author on, on this piece, he's at EdChoice, and I'm a Friedman Fellow at EdChoice, and if if you're having problems in your state capitol with this argument, he and I are both super big nerds. And so EdChoice flies us into state capitals to talk to state budget officials and things and legislative budget officials to talk about uh, designing bills to make sure that they save states money and save local public schools money. Um, and we're happy to do that if you contact Ed, you know, it's edchoice.org.
0: Okay, I will let the super big nerd comment go, but you just look at your screen, you'll see whether that's true. Um, I'm gonna combine two questions here, which are really good, but both get at the same uh, issue. Um, so just stand by two people here. The first comes from, uh, Bradley Brown, he says, in Texas, there's a concern that widespread school choice programs would undermine the independence of private schools. This could drive curriculum requirements or cause values disagreements. How have you seen schools retain their independence under different school choice regimes? And related to this is a question that comes from Joshua Mason, who says, some homeschooling parents oppose school choice because they worry it means government will have more say in alternative alternative curricula. How would you address this fear? And are there examples of places with school choice where alternative curricula isn't heavily regulated? I'll start by entering, or start entering it by saying we have a chapter uh, by John Merrifield um, that talks a lot about the dangers of school choice programs leading to overregulation of schools, and that is a big concern that we have to deal with. I think from sort of a pro school choice standpoint of We may be so um, motivated to get 1,000 more kids into a private school or 2,000 more kids into a charter school. We'll accept all sorts of regulations, including high stakes testing uh, requirements that essentially require school to go on to um, state curriculum because they have to give state tests. And so that is a concern. What we've seen is where you have scholarship tax credit programs. Uh, There tends to be less regulation because people uh, not only choose the schools, but people get to choose whether they donate to scholarships, and they often get to choose to whom. It could be a Catholic diocese. It could be Montessori schools. It could be lots of people or lots of groups like that, so those tend to be less regulated. Uh, I'm going to go to um, Inez, though, who would like to speak on this, and then after Inez, we'll go to Tim. Inez, you are muted, I'm afraid.
2: (laughs) I had it on. I'm sorry about this. Um, No, so I think first it's important to note that there is no Benedict option um, here, and uh, if people are familiar with the work of Rod Dreher, the the benefit of supposed Benedict option, meaning that, um, you know, folks who maybe disagree with what is being taught in in the mainstream um, schools or in in culture at large can withdraw out of society and um, can can sort of build an alternative community. I, I think that within the realm of education, there really can't be that Benedict option because as we're seeing, you know, the the public schools do teach the vast majority of kids, um, and the values that they teach then, uh, you know, sort of work their way into the rest of our our society in in a way that uh, precludes complete withdrawal. So um, I do think there's a risk of overregulation. It's why I support only state-based school choice programs rather than federal, because federal regulation is much harder to undo. It's much easier to fight it on the state level than it is on the national level. Um, So I think while we always have to be very, very cognizant of this danger, um, and I think it is a real danger, I think school choice is still well worth doing um, because uh, I don't think that if you can continue to have all of these, uh, the vast majority of kids graduate with uh, the narrative that's being taught in public schools and have, um, have folks who disagree with that, Be left alone. I I don't, you know, the state legislature could regulate homeschooling at any time, right? Um, The state could regulate private schools at any time. They they don't necessarily need the excuse of a school choice program um, to target those sectors for regulation. So I think this is a fight we're going to have to confront one way or the other. And I'd rather have that fight with families having an option. Um, than with fam- with a, a smaller number of families having that option because uh, that, that just adds to our team in the fight as far as I can tell.
5: All right, Tim. Thanks, Neil. So one of the most important things to remember when we're talking about school choice programs is that what they do is they benefit families. They provide financial assistance to families to make the best choice for their students. And that is just a critical component when we're talking about pushing back against regulation, because there is a risk of overregulation, But we can minimize that risk by continually reminding policymakers that what we're doing is we're empowering families to decide where they want their kids to go to school. And what that means is that those schools are ultimately accountable to parents. Right now, the public schools are not accountable to parents, because the parents are tracked. They have no choice but to go to the school that they are residentially assigned to attend. When you add that level of additional accountability, ensuring schools are directly accountable to the parents, we can we can be a lot more confident that those schools will be responsive to, sensitive to, um, and responsive to the parents' desires, their needs, um, and that they will provide a quali- quality education, both um, in terms of academics, but also in terms of other aspects that the parents may be looking for, whether it's a safe environment, uh, whether it's a religious education, or, or any other factor that the parents may be seeking. Uh, so continually reminding policymakers that we're funding students not schools, uh, when you're talking about adopting a school choice program. It's just critical to pushing back against overregulation.
0: Great. Uh, I'll just remind everybody watching that if you have a question or comment, uh, you can send it on whatever platform you're watching. You can use hashtag CatoCEF to make sure that it gets to me. Uh, and hopefully we can get to it. We've got a lot of questions and comments, so let's get right to the next one. It comes from Patrick McGinn. He says, every child today has a Social Security number. How hard would it be for parents to show up to the school they'd like their child to attend, public or private, and simply have the state allocate the appropriate per-pupil funds to that school? Uh, And maybe I'll start, Tim, if you don't mind uh, trying that, because it's not... uh, um, an approach I've heard, but it seems like it would be sort of a nice easy one that we put the power in the hands of parents and they just go to a school and say, let's have that money go there.
5: Well, I, I imagine that's most of our ideal, right? Is that, that literally the dollars would follow the child. Um, or as one of my, my former uh, school choice clients said, the dollars should follow the scholar. Um, and you know, it, it sounds like a creative idea to just be able to show up with your social security number. You know, obviously, I don't know the, the precise mechanics of it, but uh, but but that's the point um, that that the the student should be able to take their educational funding to the school of their choice. Period. End of story. Great, uh, Pat.
3: Yeah, uh, Neil, you just described how private school choice works in most European and Commonwealth countries uh, around the world you know the, the United States is rather exceptional we have uh, much less private school choice than most advanced countries around the world and the way it works in places like the Netherlands and Belgium uh, and Australia is is exactly that is that is that parents, choose the school, send their child to a particular school, public or private. And and then based on those enrollment counts, the state funds the child. Now this does open up the door for some concerns that Tim Keller alluded to in his previous answer. And that is because of the direct support of private schools by government funds through that kind of a system, there tends to be more regulation. Of, of curriculum and and other you know teacher credentials and things like that of the private schools in these uh, European and, and Commonwealth choice systems so it's it may not be the preferred model for us here here in the US but it, it is a model that's used in other countries
0: great uh,
4: Ben yeah. This is exactly how public schools do it. Public schools have account day. They send a list of names of kids in, and then the money comes from the state, right? So th- this is very doable. Um, I agree with Patrick. There might be some concerns about, uh, you know, overregulation and things, but this is extremely doable mechanically.
0: All right, Corey?
1: I don't think libertarians should be concerned too much about regulations because these programs are voluntary. No family has to accept the funding. So if you're a homeschool family and you should be able to make that individual decision, are the additional benefits uh, with additional funding worth the additional costs of any additional government regulations? Um, you know, the, you, most libertarians are okay with people making these cost benefit decisions. So I think it's a step in the right direction, particularly when we look at the default option when it comes to K-12 ed- education is a highly regulated government run school system. And so even if the private school choice program is pretty highly regulated, it's still going to be less regulated, usually less, th- less than the uh, traditional public school. So uh, for, for as far as a libertarian perspective, it should be still a step in the right direction. And I just want to uh, to respond to Patrick's question. This is essentially how so many other taxpayer-funded initiatives already work. If you look at Pell Grants and the GI Bill at the higher education level, the funding goes to families and families can choose a public or private university of their choosing. We do this with pre-K programs too. The funding doesn't go to a residentially assigned pre-K. The funding goes to the family and the family can choose a public or private provider of pre-K services And you can go on and on with these examples, food stamps, for example. We don't tell low-income families they must spend their food stamp funding at residentially assigned government-run grocery stores. No, we allow them to to accept the funding and then take that funding to Walmart, Whole Foods, and Trader Joe's. And allowing people to have that choice uh, never brings up these conversations about having that choice defunding a particular institution because we rightly understand with all these other programs, the, fu- the primary beneficiary is the family or the student as uh, Tim Keller alluded to earlier.
0: Uh, I'll just say that we certainly want the money to follow the students just on the regulation point. Uh, I do think this is a, a the regulation broadly is a really important question. And again, John Merrifield has a chapter in the book, the book being School Choice Myths. Um, that there is a danger if we pass lots of programs that are heavily regulated, that we give school choice a black eye. For instance, as Corey and, and I think Pat and others have written about, in Louisiana, we have a heavily regulated program. We get bad outcomes because the schools that opt into it are often the ones, the private schools that really need the money because they may not be the best functioning private schools in the state. And so that regulation deters the best schools from becoming involved. So we do want to make sure that we're paying attention to regulations and proposed programs because some of them could be so onerous, they make that program a net loss. And John Merrifield talks about that in the book. I wanted to make sure that I got that plug in again for his uh, chapter. Um, And then I have to go back to you now, Ben, because uh, as somebody might have said, you might have the most pernicious of all the myths. Um, And so we have another question from Burke Padbury. It's about charter schools, but it applies to voucher programs or other private school choice programs. They say, how do charter schools not take money from public schools? Aren't public school budgets based on number of students attending? So maybe you can explain uh, one more time, because it's a tough, tough one for a lot of people to intuitively capture what is happening, that it's not really just pulling money and starving Uh, private school, I mean, public schools. And maybe somebody else can talk about, there is research that shows that when the public schools face competition, they end up improving. But Ben, since you guys took on the big myth, you may have to go over it again.
4: Yeah. If you think about every other walk of life, no one is entitled to your money. If, if I shop at Kroger for my groceries every week, and then next week I switch to Walmart for my groceries, Kroger doesn't get to keep any of my money next week, but public schools do. So even when a student leaves a traditional public school for a charter school, public school districts get to retain funds. They actually have the best fiscal deal of any walk of life on the planet, but then they complain the loudest that you're taking our money. So yes, you're gonna lose money when you lose students, just like my university loses money when we lose students. But the question is, and we we address this in our chapter and in our other research actually, is what about the students who remain in traditional public schools? And what we show is they actually have more resources devoted to their education when some students leave because they get to retain funds. They get to retain often local funds, and always they to retain almost all federal funds. And I know others will hit this, but the research shows that when there's more competition through school choice programs, public school students, students who remain in public schools experience modest learning gains. So think about the parable of the talents, right? If we have a little bit of school choice and we get modest learning gains, we should do more school choice and maybe we can expect even bigger learning gains for students who stay in public schools. So choice programs leave more resources for students in public schools and learning gains.
0: All right, Patrick Wolf, you wanna add to that?
3: Yeah, I'll just uh, dovetail off of of Ben's last point. Uh, I recently finished a a paper for the Hoover Institution at Stanford University where I reviewed and, and summarized the results from the 28 Statistical studies of what happens to student achievement in public schools that are pressured by new or expanded private school choice programs. And of those 28 studies, 27 find that uh, competition has the positive effect, the clear positive effect on uh test scores of students who remain in the public schools that that ben just just described the only study that that finds any evidence that the students left behind in affected public schools are actually academically harmed uh, was actually conducted by by a couple of my graduate students of the florida the original florida fcat program that uh, was struck down by a court and never really had a chance to run. Uh, so, the only private school choice program that's ever been found to have a negative effect on the achievement of public schools uh, is gone and has been gone for a long time. So, there's an overwhelming consensus in the research literature that competition for private school choice is a, generates a rising tide that lifts all boats.
0: Great. Uh, I'll just point out that charter schools are public schools. They, it can be confusing because an ostensibly private entity, a group, Any sort of private group could, in theory, run one of these schools, uh, but they have to get permission from a public entity. It's often a school district, can be a state, it could be in some places a college university. uh, But they are public schools. They have to give uh, state tests and things like that. So just so people have some idea that charter schools are are not actually private schools, they are actually public schools. Uh, But Inez want to talk a little bit about the funding question that underlies a whole lot of of what we talk about in education, including, well, is it good or bad if public schools are defunded? That's a result of school choice. So, Inez, please go ahead.
2: Sure. I think there are some false assumptions that are built in to some of these questions. Um, One of those is that our public school system is underfunded. when the reality is in survey after survey, we find that Americans vastly underestimate uh, how much we are spending in our, our public schools, right? So for example, the average per people expenditure across America is somewhere between 14 dollars and $15,000 a year. Compare that to private school tuition where the average private school tuition in this country is actually somewhere around 11,000. So um, we, the, the underlying idea that public schools are really hurting for money um, is is just not true. And in fact, I think the reason this myth is so pervasive is because districts make very poor decision-making, they make very poor decisions, and I'm sure Ben Scafidi can speak to this in detail. Um, They make very poor decisions with their money that sometimes result in actual classroom shortages. So Americans see those classroom shortages. They see that sometimes teachers haven't gotten raises for years. They see that teachers are spending their own money on classroom supplies, and they assume that there's not enough money going into the system at the top. And oftentimes that's just not true. Um, the reality is that districts are making poor decisions. They're either hiring um, more administrators rather than applying that money uh, to to teachers' um, salaries or classroom supplies in, in Chicago, actually, um, in Illinois, actually, sorry, um, excuse me, the, the whole state, there was a, a great study that showed that only 11 cents out of every new dollar that was spent on education um, actually ended up in the classroom. So 89 cents of every new dollar that was spent was ending up somewhere along the way outside of the classroom. Um, so I think th- that's just something that a lot of Americans, I mean, don't understand just because they don't work in a district or, or they're not uh, a nerd like Ben Scafidi, who's going to crunch the numbers for us. Um, but but they see those, those shortages and they assume that they come from the top. Uh, but in, in reality, a lot of the shortages are just the result of poor spending decisions.
0: Great. Thank you. Um, so, a uh, lot of discussion about whether Ben Scafidi is a nerd. That could be the subject of our next book. Um, but Here's a question that is going to go to Tim. Uh, Anybody can uh, answer it, the main question, Uh, but it starts with a very important constitutional decision that was made. Uh, This comes from John Priest. He says, do you feel that the Espinoza decision came too late? Uh, Tim, I'll ask you to explain what that is in a second. But he says, for example, over 150 Catholic schools have closed, and that is they've closed this year. Um, urban Catholic schools, in addition to needing bold leadership, so he has some concerns about the schools themselves, but they need a diverse funding source, or they need diverse funding sources to be attainable for low-income children. So, uh, Tim, could you start by telling us what Espinoza is, uh, talk a little bit about this constitutionality myth, uh, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about how we get money to private schools so they can be viable. Tim, go ahead.
5: Sure. Thanks, Neil. So uh, just this past June, uh, the United States Supreme Court in uh, a decision titled Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue held that states cannot exclude religious schools from an otherwise generally available and neutral school choice program. Um, And so for for over the last 30 years, uh, the Institute for Justice has been uh, battling in state and federal courts um, against efforts to exclude religious schools from school choice programs, uh, opponents of school choice uh, have often looked to state constitutional provisions, religion clauses that are written more restrictively than the federal constitution to try and, and keep uh, families who receive scholarships from using those scholarships at religious schools. And in June, the U.S. Supreme Court said uh, absolutely not. Um, if, if a state Decides to enact a school choice program, it must allow families to choose both religious and non religious schools. The state has to remain completely neutral with regard to religion, um, and they have to allow parents to exercise uh, their pre existing constitutional right to direct the education and upbringing of their own students. Um, and so, uh, under the ruling, states don't have to enact school choice programs, but again, if they do, they cannot treat religious families. Um, as second-class citizens they have to be able to uh, use those dollars at the schools that are going to work for their kids just like every other family in america so it's a really critical ruling um, it, it really removed one of the lo- the Espinoza decision removed one of the biggest legal arguments that we encounter when states and policymakers are considering school choice programs took that legal argument away from school choice opponents um, but of course it does it didn't uh, doesn't overcome the political battles that we're still going to have to face um, in, in state legislatures to, to see new programs enact Um, Did it come too late? Um, I certainly hope not. Um, uh, There's no doubt that that the pandemic that we're all uh, living through right now has has really shown a spotlight on the need to provide families with genuine educational choice, educational options. Um, And it's my hope that that the the pandemic and and the Espinoza decision will work together as state legislatures start coming back into session um, to really adopt robust uh, school choice programs, like uh, education savings accounts that will put parents in charge of how they want to use their educational dollars and not just for public sc- or private school tuition, um, but for other educational options as well, whether it's a, a version of homeschooling or a learning pod or, or some other uh, new innovative approach to education that hasn't yet come on the scene. Um, and the parents will truly be empowered to make those decisions for their own kids.
0: Uh, Yeah, and on the question whether it's coming too late, I'll just, just a little plug for what the Center for Educational Freedom's been working on. Uh, We've been tracking the effect of COVID-19 on private schools. Private schools have struggled for a very long time because fundamentally they have to charge for something the government is giving you, quote unquote, for free. Um, But we've seen uh, this, certainly the number of 150 roughly Catholic schools have gone out of business since the beginning of the year. Not all of those are COVID related. We track at about 116 or 17 uh, private schools that have gone out of business with some connection to COVID. In other words, the schools have said because of the lockdown, the economic situation, their church that may help to support them couldn't hold. Uh, services and couldn't collect or take up collections that helped to support the school. But we've seen a lot of those schools, um, we've seen about 116 schools go out of business with that COVID connection. Uh, We did uh, a very quick survey of private schools and found that on average, they lost about six students uh, or 6% of their enrollment from the previous year. That's a very rough estimate. Um, And about half of schools had lost students, about a quarter had gained. Uh, But that continues to be a very uh, fluid situation as public schools continue to change, whether they're opening in person, they're opening online, they're doing hybrid or something like that. Uh, But we've also seen for decades private schools that have gone out of business, in particular those Catholic schools that tend to cost less, um, have been hard hit by the fact they have to compete against something that is free. Um, I wanna move on though to another question because we're getting a lot of great questions and answers and I apologize for questions I don't get to, but this is a really important one that I think a lot of people share. And Inez, uh, it goes uh, directly to your chapter, but anybody can answer. It comes from Gregory Thayer who says, thank you for your book and forum today. And I say, you're welcome. Uh, he said, my question is on a level playing field. Public schools must take all students, including disabled and handicapped students and behavioral issues students, whereas parochial or private schools and maybe charter schools can pick and choose their students. Um, and so I'll start with you, Inez, because you you write in particular about uh, kids with disabilities.
2: That's right. Um, so I... To some extent, I disagree with the premise, right? Certainly, charter schools, for the most part, cannot pick and choose their students. Um, They have to take all comers, and then if there are additional students, um, overflow, right? The more seats than they have. um, So that they have to do by lottery. So, so charter schools, um, we can talk about whether families that make choices have different characteristics um, than families that stay behind. But fundamentally, charter schools are not exercising, they're not like picking and choosing um, which students are enrolled uh, beyond that that initial sort of the parents making the decision to actually leave the traditional public school. Um, so, But in terms of, of uh, whether choice actually helps students with special needs, I, I argue in, in my chapter that in fact, students with special needs are some of the best served students uh, by school choice programs, in part because public schools have served them so poorly and to some extent have to serve them poorly in order uh, to, to meet the needs of all the other students in in, uh, in the school. So it's very, very difficult, even though we have individualized education plans, right? Um, it's very, very difficult in the traditional public school context to actually provide individualized education. And so students with special needs are, are obviously at the top of the list in terms of students. All students could use individualized education, uh, but students with special needs, obviously, have uh, an additional uh, reason to, to have a, a tailored program just for them. Um, and and that this is not theoretical because there, there are already 100,000 students, um, people enrolled in the programs, uh, the school choice programs that are exclusively for students with special needs. In fact, it's, it's one of the most common um, program types to get passed in the States. There's 21 of these programs, 100,000 students, like I said, Uh, exactly because oftentimes the public schools, um, you know, parents have an enormous, have enormous difficulties getting their IEPs enforced in schools, um, getting those those, um, special services that they require for their children in public schools. And oftentimes these IEP meetings turn into battle royales for parents where there's a constant and and very acrimonious pushback between families and the schools in these meetings that sometimes spill over into lawsuits. And I'm sure um, Tim can, can speak to this, but we had a recent decision in 2017, the Andrews decision, that that uh, guaranteed students with special needs uh, more than de minimis services from the public schools Um, and unfortunately even with that decision we've seen those battles continue and we've seen that school districts generally win them in lower courts Uh, so oftentimes families are incredibly frustrated with the services that they are quote unquote on parchment with the idea um, federal legislation, with IEPs, they're on paper, they're entitled to certain services that they are just not receiving from the public schools, which is why we see such high satisfaction ratings, particularly from parents um, who have children with special needs, when they do go ahead and enroll, for example, in Arizona's uh, ESA program, Education Savings Account program, and they're able to actually direct at individualized education and get the services they require for the first time. So I, I think overall, school choice has been an enormously important important um, opportunity for students with special needs and their families.
0: All right, Tim,
5: you want to add something? Personal anecdotes. Number one is that I have represented uh, dozens of families of students with special needs um, in in court to defend school choice programs that are serving their families. Um, I remember one one family, Andrea Weck and her daughter, Lexi, um, the public schools refused to provide anything beyond just simple babysitting and and Andrea knew that her daughter could do so much more and as a result of uh, a a school choice program she was able to attend a school that that really poured into her and she has done uh incredible things um you know she, she 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 doesn't she's not verbal but she has an iPad and she can speak through her iPad now. She's got horseback riding, she does bowling, she got to dance with her mom when her mom got remarried. Um, it's just a truly remarkable story and it's all a result of the school choice program allowing uh, a mom to choose the school that was gonna work best for her beautiful daughter. Um, and then the other thing is my wife and I um, have, have been a foster family. We we had a placement with a, a little girl who came to us with an IEP, had tr- tremendous learning needs. Um, and, and when we set out to, to find the school that was gonna work for her, the traditional public schools were not all that welcoming to her her significant needs, um, whereas a number of charter schools that we looked at um, were, were very excited to, to, to have her come in um, and pour into her and, and meet her needs, um, and that's where she ended up going, um, was to a, a charter school, um, and it was simply because they were the ones that were most interested in working with us and helping her. Great. Pat? Uh,
3: yeah, I'm going to punch my nerd card here and uh, declare that last year, 22% of the students who were participating in private school choice programs around the country were in programs that were limited to students with disabilities. Now, that compares to the public schools in the United States, where the rate of serving students with disabilities is just 11%. So, twice as many, proportionally, twice as many students in private school choice programs have disabilities compared to students in traditional public schools.
0: Okay, so uh, Patrick Wolf or Ben Scaffity, which is the bigger nerd? Remember, question. Leave your comments or answers to that using hashtag CatoCEF. So, bigger nerd, Patrick Wolf or Ben Scafody. Um, So, we're nearing the end of our scheduled time. And I know that there's some folks who are on the panel who have other things to do, which I can't understand, but I've got nothing else to do. Uh, But we'll try and answer some more questions, even though we're probably going to lose some people. I think Pat uh, is going to have to go soon because he actually has to teach kids things. Um, And I don't know that uh, I think Inez can't stay too long, but I want to get to a question. I'm going to go to Pat, even though you're not the most natural person to answer this based on your chapter, but it gets so into your chapter, we got to do it. Then I'm going to say something. So here's the question. Uh, It comes um, from Caitlin Parsons. Uh, What about the myth that school choice would worsen segregation in schools and hurt minority children? I'm going to get to the direct question, but a lot of that has to do with, you know, are we making citizens who will be sort of good Americans and that we'll all get along? And your chapter has a lot to do with that sort of shaping of citizens and people who get along. And so what, what does your chapter say about that?
3: that public schooling is necessary for democracy and that private school choice programs therefore undermine civic values. Uh, And basically I look at uh, the 90 findings from around 40 different statistical studies of the association between private schooling and civic outcomes like political tolerance, political knowledge, political participation and community engagement. Now, these are areas where many people claim government-run public schools um, are absolutely necessary or these civic outcomes will decline and undermine our democracy. But if you look at all the findings, all 90 findings, 56 of them show that adults who attended private schools actually have higher levels of these civic dispositions and behaviors than similar adults who attended traditional public schools Um, there are 41 findings that there's no clear difference between public and private schooling in promoting civic outcomes. And there are only three out of 90 findings that government-run public schools have an advantage over private schools in forming the next, uh, the next generation of citizens. So as I say in the book, I mean, the score is kind of 56 to 3. If this was a rec league softball game, you know, they would have ended the contest under the mercy rule a long time ago. But strangely enough, the myth persists.
0: What I'll also say is we have two chapters that also deal uh, directly with this question. One uh, is is mine, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But also Phil Magnus, uh, he talks about the what we hear a lot, which is that this idea that school choice is actually grounded, based, and born of segregation. And a lot of people say, "Well, we never even heard about school choice until Brown v. Board of Education." Uh, And then people said, well, you should get to choose a school because you don't want to go to a desegregated school. Um, He talks about how actually a lot of people who wanted segregation were worried about private school choice um, because that would lead to integration of schools. And you need to read the chapter to get all the details on that. Um, And he talks about that actually school choice is an idea that goes way before Brown v. Board of Education. You can talk about, uh, many philosophers talk about it. You can go to uh, the history of this country uh, where Roman Catholics wanted school choice because the public schools were de facto uh, Protestant institutions. I mean, school choice is not a new idea. And in fact, if you go to the early part of the U.S. history, uh, often we allowed public funds to go to uh, religious schools and schools of people's choice. So this idea that it is grounded in segregation is just totally factually, historically incorrect. Uh, My chapter is more about, is there research evidence that shows that private school choice not only leads to physical segregation, uh, but it causes us to be balkanized, to sort of not like each other, even more based on group identity. The reality is that the studies of school choice in the United States show that it has a desegregating effect, um, that there's actually more integration in schools when we have private school choice. And there is sort of new burgeoning uh, research that shows that, People build stronger bonds of affinity among each other, or bridges of different groups when they can choose a school. So you may have people of a different race who want a common religious ethos in their school, and they'll choose a religious school, and that builds a new identity that overcomes these uh, separate sort of race-based identities they had. You could be all sorts of cross-cutting identities that bring people together and lead to sustainable sort of integration and togetherness of people. Uh, And so we deal a lot with that myth. Um, Let's see. Uh, I want to see if anybody else has, uh, oh, and I will just say, Corey D'Angelis put this, uh, we have a little chat we can do, uh, that there are some people who are kind of, uh, you might call them white nationalists or something like that, who also oppose school choice. So You will hear a lot that school choice is based in segregation and will lead to more segregation. And the research just doesn't support that. And then I think, Ben Scaffity, did you have something you wanted to mention on that before I go to the next question or comment? Yes. American
4: society over the last few decades has become more racially integrated. Neighborhoods are more racially integrated. Interracial marriage, interracial adoption. The anomaly is public schools. The public school system since around 1980 has gotten more segregated or has lagged behind neighborhood integration. So public schools are the anomaly. Everyone else is becoming more integrated.
0: Great, Uh, let me just see. Does anybody else have anything? All right, we're gonna move on to the next one quickly if we can. Uh, This comes from Logan Smith via Twitter. Um, And this, again, is kind of for you, Ben. Uh, Public schools have suffered from administrative bloat, and so have public and private universities. How do we know an influx of government money from school choice programs to non-public schools won't result in the same for them? And I think that's an excellent question, and you get all the hard ones because you're the biggest nerd.
4: (laughs) That is a great question. Um, I've written on this, as Inez said earlier, quite a bit. in in what I call the staffing surge in public schools. And public schools have been adding staff at a much higher rate than their increase in students since at least 1950. Since 1950, American public schools have basically doubled their enrollment, but their staffing has gone up by like a factor of five. And a lot of that has been in administration. A lot of that has been in support staff um i wrote a piece actually for the cato journal a couple years ago that showed that higher education our 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 administrative bloat the problem was never as big as it was in k-12 public schools and several books came out around 2005 saying you know higher ed's got a lot of administrative bloat and since 2005 higher ed actually has done a better job including at my university um, you know, we had a budget cut this go around because of COVID, and our president did a great job of reducing administration. I thought she did a fantastic job. Um, and so, but again, even when higher ed was getting more bloated, they never had the problem. But the answer to your question is your last question is do parents want this? Do parents want administrative bloat, or do they want money devoted to their children's education spent in the classroom? So when you have school choice, if a given private school or a given public school spends too much money on administration or anything that you don't think is a good use of funds, you can just take your your, your scholarship and move to another school. That's the beauty of school choice. If you're not getting what you want, you can leave. Rich people can leave now. Rich people can move to private schools. Rich people can move to, to good school districts. But we want to give the middle class and poor people that same choice through like scholarship programs so they can leave if if schools are, say, spending money on administrative bloat or any other bad thing.
0: Uh, Corey, you have something you want to add real fast? Uh, Because I got two more. Yeah. We're in overtime. uh,
1: Ben hit the nail on the head. You know, competition matters here. And there's about five studies that I know of on the topic that when school choice, Ah, uh, competition is 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 in play. Uh, the teacher salaries actually go up in the traditional public schools. So while we see in general as spending goes up in public schools, the teachers don't get a lot of that um, because it's going towards additional staffing and administrative bloat when the public schools have a competitive incentive to actually spend the money wisely, the teachers actually benefit too. So a lot of the times you hear that school choice is anti-teacher or anti-public school, but it could actually be pro-public school and pro-teacher by allocating more dollars to, uh, where it matters the most in the classroom through competition.
0: Okay. I'm going to get now to the last two. One's a comment. One's a question. I had to read the que- the comment though. Uh, it comes from Alex who says, if, nerd equals well-informed and articulate, never mind, I don't qualify. I'll try this again. If nerd equals well-informed and articulate, you are all super nerds. And even though I just proved I'm not articulate, I'm still blushing a little. Okay. And so that gets into our our last question that we will be able to do today. Uh, This comes from Mike Padden, who says, at this point, school choice programs are means tested. Should school choice be extended to all, even to the wealthy? Would this simply cause resegregation by wealth as the wealthy bid up the cost of education and exclude the poor from the best education? Uh, does anybody want to start with that one? Inez, you have something on this, and we know you have to go quickly, so we'll let you go first.
2: Sure. Um, so so the short answer, I think, is as Corey was shaking his head, is is, is no. In fact... One of the best political ways to keep school choice programs viable over time so that they're not under attack year after year in the state legislature is to ensure that middle class families are actually participating in it. Because right now um, we have the vast majority of school choice programs are either uh, restricted to students with special needs, as we talked about before, or they're restricted by income or zip code. Um, and that means that the people who get the benefits from the school choice program are often some of the least equipped to actually like lobby the government. Um, and, and that's a very crass way of looking at, at politics, but it also happens to be true. That um, kind of, that that's re- the reason for example, that programs like social security are largely politically untouchable Um, It's because the benefits go to a broad class of people um, who who then become, you know, sort of used to having them. And it's very, very difficult to repeal those kinds of programs. Uh, So so if we want school choice to be a stable part of the American education landscape, uh, I think it's essential, in fact, that the, the programs be universal. And and the the other reason they should be universal is because um, it'll widen the market for for everybody. Right. So if school choice programs remain very limited, uh, there's there's a certain limit on on sort of the new options that are springing up to serve students who then have dollars from school choice programs because these programs are so limited. Uh, the larger they get, the larger uh, the amount of money that these these students collectively have uh, to spend on their educations. Uh, the more you know, the more providers will be interested in serving them. So I, I think it really helps. Uh, everybody to have as many people participating in these programs as as possible. And and then the third aspect uh, that I would just like to briefly hit is uh, that universal school choice programs give everybody leverage. So even if you are largely satisfied with your public school, let's say um, you are a middle-class family who lives in the suburbs um, and you're largely happy with your public school, uh, and the education that it provides, but you're unhappy, say, with the curriculum, or you're unhappy with this, what the school is teaching about human sexuality, or unhappy with the fact that they're using a Howard Zinn textbook, or from the left, right, um, unhappy with something that is being taught in your public school. It's really important to have that leverage that when you go in uh, to meet with the principal or with the administrators. Uh, that you have the leverage of being able to take your dollars elsewhere. Because what we're finding in a lot of these these, uh, sort of values clashes that that Neil uh, has been tracing on his public school battleground map is that even when you have thousands of parents uh, who are on the same page, who do not want a particular piece of information or curriculum to be taught in the school, they're largely being ignored uh, because the districts have no incentive, no financial real incentive to listen to them. And that's something that affects all of us, whether... um, you know, whether it's it's low income families or, or middle class families, uh, that's that that kind of lack of leverage um, in and in, in power in the public school system affects everybody. So I think that's the third very important reason to make sure that we are at least starting with the assumption that school choice programs should be universal.
0: All right. We're going to give Ben Scafidi, super nerd, the final word on this.
4: I agree with everything Inez said, the public schools have been making themselves more identical over time. Equal funding, same curriculum in all schools in the state, same tests. So rich people sort based on what they think are better peers. They move to what they think are better neighborhoods, bid up housing prices, screen out everybody else. So the public school system is currently causing income segregation, which has been rising since 1970 in this country. And if you had a school choice program that was available to everybody you would give people a different reason to sort among schools people could sort together in catholic schools based on their faith or jewish schools or muslim schools for example people could sort based on curriculum like montessori or waldorf and so it would be across income classes across racial classes and so you got to give people another reason to sort public schools the only way you can sort yourself is choosing based on income, and we've been seeing higher income segregation because of that.
0: Yeah, I'll just add my two cents, which is it makes no sense to have the price of a school equal the price of a home, and that's what we do with public schooling. It says your tuition is whatever the cost of a house is uh, in the district that you want to get into, and that makes no sense. Uh, And with that, I want to thank everyone for watching. I especially want to thank our panelists Uh, for joining us. I want to thank all the contributors to this book, School Choice Myths, available now. Um, And I'll just say early congratulations if you uh, open your mail in about a week or so and you've got a free book signed by me and Corey D'Angelis. That means you submitted a really good question or comment. And so thank everyone again and goodbye.